0: Welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about Orlando Furioso by Ludovico Ariosto. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is David Slavitt. He's a poet, novelist, critic, and translator. His many books include a recent collection of poems called Opus Posthumus from LSU Press. And he's also given us an original verse translation of Orlando Furioso*. so which you can find from Harvard University Press and a companion volume from Outpost 19. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. David, welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Why is Orlando Furioso by Ludovico Ariosto a great book?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by a great book. It's a wonderful book. Great book is one of those words that gets me nervous because a lot of people think that poetry is in some way good for you. Uh, It's like brand or vitamins. And it isn't. It's, It's an entertainment. So, this is a fun book to read, and people who enjoy reading poetry will like it a lot. The The tragedy in, in, in our uh, contemporary society is that most kids in it are introduced to poetry by teachers who do not themselves read poetry for pleasure. So, they misconstrue the whole exercise. And they think that the teachers often think, mistakenly, that if you have the students write an essay explaining what the poem is saying, uh, you've done something good. And what that does is to concentrate the student's attention on equivalent meaning or a prose version which is to say the poem without with all the poetry taken out. And that's not what it's about at all. So to be clear, the English uh, language equivalent uh, of this is probably Lord Byron's Don Juan, which is how it's pronounced because it rhymes. He has it rhyming with new one and true one. Uh, So it's Don Juan. And that's also in Otava Rima. And it's also extremely funny. Funny is something that both of these books kind of have to overcome, because teachers think that literature is a serious business, and they, there's a prejudice against humor. I mean, if you have a book that makes you laugh out loud, how serious can that be? Put it another way, what's there to say about it? Either the reader laughs, or he doesn't, and if he doesn't laugh at anything, it may be because he needs some information, and you can, you can convey that, uh, or it may be just that either he has no sense of humor, uh, or that the poem isn't any good. Uh, Lord Byron is terrific. I think that Don Juan is one of the great books, uh, one of the great works of English poetry. If you, if you enjoy that, this is sort of like it, a great big mock epic that's mostly jokes.
0: We'll talk about all that, the stories, the characters in Orlando Furioso, its legacy. And I want to start with this question about fun. In your Harvard University Press edition your translation of Orlando Furioso. So you make this point in the translator's preface that you really wanted the sense of fun to come across in this poem. Explain that for us. How is this poem fun? How is it not just homework?
1: I don't know. Explain why a Charlie Chaplin movie is funny. Now, either you see it or you don't. There's not a lot to say about it. The performance... In uh, both cases, uh, Ariosto and Byron, it's fairly long, and part of the joke is that it can be maintained. It's a hard it, it's a hard stanza to do, and it's a hard stanza to do hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of times without being boring. So you kind of admire this as at the same time as you're enjoying it. But to explain why something is funny is very difficult. You know, it's like saying, explain to somebody who's never had it what chocolate tastes like.
0: Okay, let's start with how the poem begins. It has canto primo. I should say the the form of this poem is 46 cantos of eight line stanzas of this ottava Rima rhyme scheme. And it has... 38,736 lines. So this is a long poem. But let's look at the very first, the first few lines from Canto Primo, which is this quote, and this is from your translation, quote, of ladies knights of passions and of wars of courtliness and of valiant deeds i sing that took place in that era when the moors crossed the sea from africa to bring such troubles to france and it goes on. That I sing line sounds to me like like Virgil and the Aeneid, but tell us what's going on here in this uh, opening line.
1: The I sing business is what a lot of epics begin with. Or the the poet will say, sing heavily muse, where the poet, the poet is invoking the muse to help him sing. But that turns out to be not entirely correct, this is a joke epic, so it sounds it comes on sounding how shall I say formal stiff uh responsible well dressed heped if there is such a such a loss positive you got the first one, two, three, four, four and a half lines, fine, but then I shall tell of the great stores of rage in the heart of Agramont, the king, who swore revenge on Charlemagne who had murdered King Traiano, Agramont's dad. Now, it's not a big yuck, but Agramont's dad is supposed to be a sudden change of tone, which is one of the sources of humor. And it's not a comment uh, that goes comfortably with, um, uh, an avali- of, of, of courtliness and of valiant deeds I sing, that's, that's, uh, that's straight. And one of the resources of Ariosto and Byron as well is changes of tone or texture or timbre that are surprising. And surprises are uh, uh, one of the one of the prime machine machinery part of the prime machinery of, of humor. So there's a little joke there. Orlando as well, I'll celebrate, setting down what has not yet been told in verse or prose, how love drove him insane, who had been known before as wise and prudent. Like me, God knows, until I, too, went half mad with my own love folly. That makes it so hard to compose in Otavarima. I pray I find the strength to write this story in detail and at length. That's That last um, prayer is clearly a joke. You know, my God, this is going to be huge, and um, I hope I have the strength.
0: Explain the rhyme scheme of Otava Rima. What is that?
1: The whole function of Otama, Otava Rima is is to allow for frequent jokes. The uh the form is A B A B A B C C. And the couplet at the end is usually a take. Um snide or sarcastic or uh, droll in some uh, some other way. Uh, and so it's a series of uh, eight-line stanzas. And if it works right, there's a laugh at each one. Now, it may be a different kind of laugh. It may be a smile. It may be a, a laugh out loud. It may be um, a pained laugh. Because there's some social comment here and there, uh, and uh, both of uh, both Ariosto and Byron were how shall I say patricians and impatient of uh, a lot of uh, middle class prejudices,
0: so our title character. Orlando. We meet him, as you say, very early in, in, in Canto Primo. He's he's Charlemagne's paladin. What's a paladin and, and and who is this guy? He's a paladin,
1: um, which is to say a um high ranking um associate. He's not just an ordinary courtier, he's a an important courtier and warrior. Because back in the early days, Uh, the nobility around the king, they were all military types. Many of them had their own armies. If you were a duke and you controlled uh, a wide swath of territory on which there were many, many farms, you could, when the, this is the whole idea of feudalism, when um, uh, your liege lord asked you to or ordered you to raise an army by having all of your farmers with their horses and their armor assemble and, 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 and fight whoever was threatening um, the king. And uh, that was your main duty as, as a uh, holder of a fief.
0: So Orlando is, what, a, a warrior? He's also a lover. and yeah, court- yeah, well, a lot of
1: warriors were lovers. I mean, a lot of lovers were warriors.
0: So Orlando's our title character, but this poem has a huge cast of characters. You, In fact, in your Harvard translation, you have a whole glossary of names in the back of the book. Uh, how do we keep track of so many characters in a big poem like this?
1: No, you look back the, at the list. That's what the list is for. It really is not important. The, the plot is not important. The plot is a hodgepodge. It goes from here to there, and and and, and the, the the narrative line is um, curious uh, and hardly makes any sense. What you are you're not supposed to be distracted by by the narrative. The the poem is in the stanzas. The poem is in the language, and those people who are capable of appreciating that and of enjoying language and responding to playfulness of language will have a good time. And those people who are studying for an exam where you have to identify these nine characters or uh, write an essay on this incident are utterly puzzled, mystified. It's, It's not for them. It's, it 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 assumes a smaller and and more elegant and intelligent audience. There are campaigns every now and then trying to encourage youngsters to read, and I've always wondered what good that did. If you were the kind of person who was going to be a reader, you discovered this on your own. It was hard to keep books away from you, but trying to encourage. The ordinary, uh, average, or even dim bulb student uh, to develop a taste for poetry is a, it's a fool's task. I mean, they just can't do it. It's like trying to teach a cat to sing. They make noises, but it's not—it's not a song, and you can't persuade them that it isn't. <laughs> Let me put it this way: I have um, a son who's now in his sixties who learned to read when he was, I don't know, three, three and a half, because his sister thought it would be fun to teach him how to read. And uh, so she did. He was given these reading readiness booklets in different colors. And at one point, his mother looked at the booklets and said, your teacher knows knows that you know how to read, doesn't she? And Joshua said, it's none of her business, which I've always thought was just absolutely right. Uh, education is something you do yourself. And uh, if you have a really good teacher, he or she just won't get in the way of it.
0: Do you have in Orlando Furioso a favorite scene or a favorite stanza, one that will give us a sense of the fun of this poem?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean... A favorite uh, is hard to select out of. You had you had before mentioned how many stanzas there were. This is uh, who's talking. I don't know. It doesn't matter. What good are you anyway, as a soothsayer, if you cannot foretell your own future? Then don't ask me to kill you. It's a ridiculous prayer. If you wanted to die, you could kill yourself, but you won't. Before you go through, open the gates up there and release the captives from your pretentious haunt. So saying, he prodded Atlas and made him go toward the castle's rock and its entrance somewhere below. I mean, it has a kind of neatness to it. The expectations are rigorous and difficult to satisfy, so each time you have a a stanza that says something, that says anything, and conforms to the form, does all the things it's supposed to do, without without signs of effort or strain. It's like watching a tennis player return a difficult ball and place it elegantly and accurately on the other side of the net in a place where his opponent can hardly reach it. And you go, oh, well done. So you, you experience something like that over and over, and you either wind up being seduced by it and just thinking, oh, this is fun, or not. You have to appreciate what's going on, And what's going on is always at the level of the stanza.
0: Tell us, David, about the art of translation. You've done so many translations of so many different works over the years. Your Orlando Fieroso is available in a couple of different volumes. How do you approach a work like this when you see it in its original Italian. You need need to render it now in English. I imagine there are lots of hard choices involving accuracy and artistry and so forth. How does that work? How did you do it with this particular work?
1: Well, probably the best translator in the history of English literature was John Dryden, who also comments about uh, translation. And his comments, while they are at first slightly puzzling, turn out to be accurate absolutely, which is that the translator is the uh, original author's partner. What you translate is not word for word or even sentence for sentence, but the spirit of it, the... uh, the atmosphere of it, the the tones and 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 and, and subtleties of it. And you you're gonna lose most of that when you go from one language to another. So if you're gonna lose, say, 70% of the poem just by rendering it in a different language, it is up to the translator to supply that missing 70% if your personality and your tastes and your your mind is compatible with that of the uh, original author, what will just occur to you is probably right. So you do what you can for a while, and then you read it, and then you put it away, and look at it a few days later, and then you read the original again. And you wonder, does this have anything to do with that? If you've done it properly or you've been lucky, you'll likely say, Yeah, this gets something of the tang of the of the first version, of the version in whatever language you're working from. So the your accurate, your fidelity is not to the words or the sentences but to the spirit of it, to the sensibility of it. And I'm claiming here to be doing ariosto, which is more important and and somewhat harder than just doing a, a rendition of those same sentences in, in English words. If you look at, uh, you are familiar, I assume, with um, uh, the Loeb Library, the uh, classics that uh, Harvard has. And they have all these poems uh, with, um, on the left-hand page, a version in English in prose. Now, this is only useful for somebody who is good enough in Latin or Greek to read it in Latin or Greek occasionally consulting with the uh, English version on FAS if you have an odd grammatical weirdness or a rare, unusual word and you don't want to spend a lot of time leafing through grammars and um, dictionaries Uh, and, and it's a convenience but nobody would think that what's on the left-hand side is the poem, because the poem is in hexameters, say. And the alternation or the variation between end-stopped lines and and jammed lines is, is, is what makes it work. And if you do it in prose. All well, that's gone. So what I try, what I try to do, is to approximate as well as I can the formal uh, aspect of the original, and it's from doing that that I get a lot of hints and uh, nudges and, and promptings of. How it should go in English, so I let I try to let the uh, the original author speak to me and through me.
0: Orlando Furioso was published initially in fifteen nineteen and then expanded in fifteen twenty one and fifteen thirty two. It's a product of the Italian Renaissance. And when I think of the Italian Renaissance and, and arts, my mind goes to the visual arts of painting and sculpture, architecture, and so on. Not the written word, but is this the greatest example of literature from the Italian Renaissance?
1: Well, again, you're back to that word greatest. Serious, serious people would probably want you to read um, uh, Writings of the Church Fathers, uh, which uh, is about God and is therefore great. If you can have greatness at the same time as you have frivolousness, then, yeah, it's very good. It's great. In some ways, what the kids now call cool would be a closer word, but, you know, great.
0: So, David, what is the value of reading Orlando Furiosa today?
1: None whatever. There's not a value of reading anything. I mean, there's a value of reading instructions when you have a new uh, electronic uh, device. But uh, reading by itself is not, doesn't, doesn't make anybody better, certainly doesn't make anybody wiser. It just refines your sensibility. Now, a refined sensibility uh, you would think is an advantage, but what it does is it allows you to be assault- assaulted and affronted and outraged over and over again, probably 50 times more frequently than that of somebody who's, who has no refinement whatever. The notion that reading is good or poems are great, all of that seems to me defensive without anybody having attacked. The reason for reading is that it entertains you. I can't remember which medieval guy it was. Pound quotes in, uh the purpose of literature is, ut moeat, ut delkeat, ut delectet, that it may move, that it may teach, that it may delight and the delight part is more important than the other two and without that there's no sense in there's no no sense in in, in in undertaking the effort
0: does does orlando frioso move and teach
1: well it teaches because it it gives you confidence to turn on any text or any 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 saying any any uh, utterance and ask of it are you kidding is this do you mean that is this is this true? Is it useful? Is it nonsense and those are is it nonsense is a question that all readers should bring to whatever they're reading all the time uh, the understand the another thing that's misleading about English courses is that pretty much everything you're reading is good. I mean, the quality is uh, okay. Uh, So that you almost never have an occasion when you can say truthfully and honestly, either to yourself or to your instructor, this is terrible, this is stupid. Much literature most literature is terrible and stupid, so your first the first duty you have as a reader is to be able to tell uh, what's worthwhile and what isn't what's good and what's spurious what's what's honest and what's dishonest and if you don't know how to do that because you've never had the occasion, it's never been asked of you. You're at at—you're at sea in many ways. And you wind up asking questions like, is this great? Uh, well, I don't know. If I like it, it's great. And if I don't like it, it may be great, but not for me. It's very difficult for some English teachers to justify what they're doing because they're Teaching people to read books that were written to be enjoyed by ordinary people without any special equipment or knowledge. What's the uh, what's the hard part of that?
0: David Slavitt, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about *Orlando Furioso* by Ludovico Ariosto.
1: Goodbye. Thank you. I was I was astonished to um uh to find your 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 invitation, your question floated. Does anybody know anything about uh Orlando Furioso? That's not a question that that I find myself facing more than once every 10 or 15 years. Thank you for posing
0: it. I'm glad we are able to try and answer it. This was a listener request. One of our listeners wanted to hear about Orlando Furioso. So Thanks to him. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at Haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books podcast.